Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. If you had been given the opportunity back a few years ago, I don't know how many years ago, but far enough back that you still had your life ahead of you. For some of you, that was several years ago, maybe decades ago. For some of you, that was last year, all right? So wherever it is, wherever you would say back a few years ago, the earlier stage of your life, if you were given the opportunity to paint what your life would be like, what would that painting look like? You know, one of the most powerful tools that God has given us as human beings is the ability to imagine the future, to dream about our future. From our earliest of childhood, right, we're, we're able to dream about what we want to be when we grow up, right? We want to be that fireman. We want to be that policeman. We want to be that pilot. And as we grow into our teens, we get a little more realistic. And as we come into adulthood, we begin to narrow down and we really begin to envision what we want our lives to be like. And when we paint that picture in our heads, we always paint a pretty picture, right? We're optimistic. We've got our whole life before us and we think, this is what my life's going to be like. This is the type of person I'm going to marry and this is the type of career I'm going to have and these are the type of children and the number of children I'm going to have and this is how I'm going to be happy. And this is how much money I'll make and, and these are the places we'll go and these are the places we'll see and here's the difference that I will make. And we don't just paint the picture for ourselves. As kids come along, we begin, we begin to paint the picture for them as well, right? Because in one sense, their painting is part of our painting. When we paint that picture, we, we, we tend to dream big. Someone once said to achieve anything significant, everyone needs a little imagination and a big dream. Right? There's an optimism that life is going to be great. And we love to paint that, that pretty picture about what our life is going to be like. But then reality hits, doesn't it? And that picture that we painted doesn't always come to pass in reality. I, I just wonder, if we were to take a, a if, if I were to have a camera of your life, a, a camera up here, and we're, and we're able to take a picture of your life in 2022... How different would be that photograph be from that painting that you painted back in that earlier part of your life? How different would that be? There are probably things that you would say, no, they're exactly the same. I have been able to accomplish and achieve parts of the vision of my life. And some of those things you might say, no, mine's way better than I ever imagined. Right? If you're kind of like me, you know, there's a sort of low expectation. It's like, dude, God blew it out the box. <laughs> he doesn't bless me. I never dreamed I would have all this. But for every one of us in this room, I have no doubt that there is at least an aspect of your life that when you compare the painting that you would have painted to the photograph of your life, there are parts that fall way short of where you thought you would be where your life would be. You would never have painted this part into your picture. Yet here it is. 
And the question is, what do you do when the dreams for your life fall short of coming to pass? Well, Elijah, as we continue in our series here, Close Encounters, Elijah had a big dream. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, right, to the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, at this point in, in, in Bible history, the kingdom that had once been united under King David and King Solomon and had grown to be an amazing kingdom on the earth became divided. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, which went by the name Israel, it kept the name Israel, but was also called Ephraim. And then the southern kingdom, which went by the name Judah. Elijah was a prophet to this northern kingdom, and he had a big dream. He had dreamed that the northern kingdom would turn from its wicked worship of pagan gods and return to the right worship of God. And this was a big dream, a big, big dream, because at this point, paganism was rampant in the northern kingdom. Uh, the, king, uh, the king of Israel was named Ahab. And he was a wicked king. We get this description of him in 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33. 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33. The Bible describes Ahab in this way. In, his, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. That's the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He was a wicked king in line with wicked kings. You see that the Bible tells us that when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split, the northern kingdom was the rebellious kingdom. The northern kingdom never had a godly king on their throne. And Ahab was just in the line of godless kings. And together he and his wife took it to a new level. This Jezebel. We, we even use her name as a, as a put-down word, don't we? You Jezebel, right? We use those words. But this Jezebel here built up pagan worship there in, northern, in, in the northern kingdom there. Such that the people, they didn't just worship false gods, but they led the people to worship false gods. And they went even further, not just to build up pagan religion, but they also suppressed and oppressed the true worship of the Lord. They even killed the prophets of the Lord, putting to death men of God, seers of God. And Elijah the prophet came on the scene, burst onto the scene in, in 1 Kings 17 here with a big dream to turn Israel back to worshiping the one true and living God, the Lord, Yahweh. Now, the first step to seeing his dream come true 
to see this dream come to pass, to see this painting that he had painted for his life to come to pass. His first step was to pronounce by decree of the Lord that there would be a drought in the land. Look at 1 Kings 17 verse 1. 1 Kings 17 verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite the, uh, of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You see, Ahab had led the people away to worship Baal. All right? And Baal was a pagan god, a foreign god of fertility. And they believed that he was the one that brought life and brought growth and brought prosperity to the land. And Jezebel and Ahab introduced this, not introduced this because it was already there, but encouraged the people to follow after this. They believed that Baal uh, oversaw the weather. He's the one who had power over rain and over drought. And so God, through Elijah, says, I'm about to show you who the real God is. I'm going to prove to you that Baal doesn't control these things that you think he controls. In fact, I'm going to show you Baal isn't even real, that the Lord, the God of Israel, is real. And so a terrible drought fell on the land. The Bible tells us that later on, it tells us that, that this drought lasted three and a half years. So if you can just imagine... If Alverton, Kentucky, Bowling Green, Kentucky, Scottsville, Kentucky didn't see rain for three and a half years, what kind of situation we would be in? Crop failure, uh, animals dying, uh, your yard would just be a dust bowl. You'd save a lot of headache having to mow your grass, I promise you. right? If this came to pass right here, so you can just imagine how, how tough and how difficult this was. Suffice it to say, God got... Ahab's attention through Elijah. And, and, and during this three and a half years, Ahab searched everywhere, high and low for Elijah, in order to put him to death, to bring him to account for what Ahab saw as him troubling Israel. But the Lord protected him. But toward the end, uh, toward the end of this drought, Elijah decides to show himself to Ahab. Let's go to 1 Kings 18, 17 through 19. 1 Kings 18 17 through 19. And here's what Ahab and Elijah talk about when they finally come face to face. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah's dream is about to come true. He's about to demonstrate once and for all that the Lord and the Lord alone is worthy of worship. And so everybody gathers at Mount Carmel. This is a passage of scripture that we probably all know well. This is one of those fun, great moments, happy, clappy moments, cheer, rah, rah moments in scripture. We love to preach 1 Kings 18 because there Elijah challenged them. You can't worship two gods. You got to choose one. And today I'm going to help you choose. And so he challenged them to a contest to see which one is the real God. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh, the Lord? 
They needed to decide which God was worthy of worship. And so Elijah had them gather two bulls, one for Baal and one for the Lord. And they were to take these bulls and they were to slaughter them and put them on these two big piles of wood there that they might set them on fire and burn them as a sacrifice to whichever God was the true God. Elijah, he explained it this way in 1 Kings 18, 23 and 24. Look at it there with me. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call, and, and I'll call upon the name of, of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So each team, so to speak, each God was going to get their own bull, their own pile of wood, their own altar. And the God that was the real God would be the one that set that bull ablaze, set that wood ablaze and sacrificed it ultimately to himself in that regard. It was going to be a clear demonstrable opportunity to prove who is the true God. And so the prophets of Baal, they get to go first. The Bible says that they cried out to Baal, Oh, Baal! Oh, Baal! Send fire down on us! And they cried out, but guess what? There was no fire. And so they began to walk around the altar, and they began to get frenzied in there walking around. The Bible actually uses the word limped. So I just picture as they sort of doing some kind of like, Dance as they went around almost. It's like, look at us, Baal. They were doing everything they could to get Baal's attention. But it didn't work. And so about noon, Elijah starts to mock him a little bit. He decides, I'm going to have a little fun with this while I'm at it. Hey, y'all ain't yelling loud enough. <laughs> you got to yell a little more. Maybe Baal is on a vacation. You got to yell a little louder. Maybe Baal is hard of hearing. Maybe... Bell is entertaining himself. He's, he's watching TV. He, he's reading a book. So he, he's, he's, he's engrossed in something. And he's just ignoring you right now. He even says, maybe Bell's in the bathroom. You know, <laughs> He's just finding every way that he can to mock him just a little bit, to, to, to rib him just a little bit. And so they cried all the louder, the Bible says. They became more and more frenzied in their movement around the altar. And soon they got to the point of frenzy and Baal had not answered, and they said, they, 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 they said, we've got to give his attention. So they began to take knives and swords and lances, and they began to cut themselves as they limped around the altar and danced and yelled and shouted and all these things so that their blood freely flowed and, and fell on the ground. Yet Baal never answered for several hours. No fire from Baal. The only thing that covered their bull was flies. Because just like that bull, their God was dead. Their God was worthless. Their God could not answer them. And finally, Elijah said, dude, that's enough. <laughs> Y'all have had your chance. You've had your turn. Now it's my turn. And so Elijah began to prepare the altar for the sacrifice, the Bible says. And he decides to up the ante. He doesn't just want to show what God can do. He wants to take it to the point where it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so he says, bring water. 
I mean, the, the contest is fire, right? Which God can light the wood and the bull on fire? And if you know anything about trying to start a fire with wet wood, it don't work too good, does it? I think every log I ever try to start, it, it, it has to be wet. I'm the worst fire starter. I'm going to start praying for God. God, would you just send fire? I mean, that's, that's my only hope, right? Because wet wood doesn't burn. But he wanted to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was the work of God. So he had them bring water and they drenched the bull and they drenched the wood with water. And to address God, Elijah didn't have to yell. He didn't have to mutilate himself and dance around and act like a fool. The Bible says that he simply had to pray. Look at his prayer in, in 1 Kings 18, 36-38. The Bible says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've turned their hearts back. Then, guess what happens? The Bible says, verse 38, the fire fell from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and, and licked up the water that was in the trench. I mean, everything, nothing was left. Even the stones were evaporated here in this moment. God answered in a big way, in a decisive way. And so we read in verse 39, and when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he's God. And then Elijah commanded the false prophets to be seized and to be put to death. And so they grabbed him and all 850 of the false prophets were put to death. And, and Elijah looked at Ahab and told him, you better get home because it's about to rain. This thing, this drought that had begun all of this three and a half years later at this point is about to be lifted. And soon thereafter, it began to rain for the first time in three and a half years, in 42 months. And Elijah was thinking, this picture that I have painted is about to come to pass. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be just the way that I painted it with the colors and with the details and everything. But soon thereafter, guess what he found out? The painting and the photograph didn't line up exactly. Because when Ahab got home and he told his wicked wife Jezebel what had happened, instead of repenting, and, and, and turning Israel back to God, then themselves turning back to the God of Israel. It just made them angrier, the Bible tells us. And they doubled down. And it threw Elijah for a loop. He couldn't believe. This is not how he envisioned it. This is not the picture that he had painted. He had pictured in his mind that the king and the queen and all of Israel would say, Yahweh is Lord and revival would break out 
and they would be brought back to a right worship with God. But that's not exactly what happened. And in a moment, it's like he forgot what God had done at Mount Carmel. In an instant, it's like he lost his mind for a moment. He gets all twisted up and he gets all sideways in his heart and his mind and in his emotions. And it would take a close encounter with God to straighten him out. A close encounter with God to straighten him out. And it would happen again at Mount Horeb, the same place where we were last week with Moses. This time it was in a cave where God personally shows up. So today we're continuing in our series called Close Encounters, where we're walking through some of the theophanies, the theophanies of God. Moments where God appeared and people closely encountered him and they were changed forever because of that encounter. The title of today's message is Elijah at the Cave. And this morning I want to point you to four life-changing truths that we can glean here from Elijah's close encounter with God here. Two of these truths are about you and me, and two of these truths are about God. Here's the first life-changing truth from this close encounter that we see here with Elijah, and it's this one. This is really important, guys. Your heart, know this, your heart is especially vulnerable after a big victory. Your heart is especially vulnerable after a big victory. Isn't that ironic? I mean, it seems like when we have that big mountaintop experience and the, the fullness and the excitement and the goodness of God all around us, it doesn't seem like in those moments that we, just, we would just ride that momentum to something even greater. But over and over in our lives, haven't you found out, just like we see here with Elijah, that it's in those moments where we have those big victories and those big mountaintop experiences that right after that comes our greatest test. We saw that with Jesus, didn't we? Think about that mountaintop experience he had in one sense when he was baptized. The Bible says that heaven opened up and, 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 and God spoke, this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. And what happened right after that? The Bible says that Jesus was whisked away into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights there by Satan himself. Perhaps your biggest test comes after your biggest victory. We see this in life. We see that here with, with Elijah on Mount Carmel as well. I mean, you talk about a victory. What an amazing, outstanding, overwhelming victory that he had there with these prophets of Baal. God showed up in an amazing way. But then we turn here to 1 Kings 19. And he's facing a test. And he's failing. Look at verse 1 through 5 here. 1 Kings 19, verse 1 through 5. Ahab, the Bible says, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and, now, and, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, when word got to her what had happened, she said, Elijah, 
I'm going to kill you just like you killed those prophets. I'm coming for you, Elijah. And you would think after that mountaintop experience that he would say, well, bring it on, sister. I mean, you're right. I mean, I mean, this is the God that just sent fire from heaven at his prayer. Couldn't he just do the same thing? Like, like Lord, just, just one lightning bolt, kaboom, she's done. But this was a test that came right after his biggest victory. And here, he's not winning. This, guys, this is one of the things that I love about the Bible, is that it's real people. The, the, if, if, if someone was just writing these stories and making them up, right, there wouldn't be no failure like this. Like you, 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 myth, when it comes to myths and things like that, no, no, they, they, they keep getting bigger and better. They, they become superheroes, right? But here's a man who's a real man like you and me, a real human being like you and me. And here he's got this test after this big victory, and he's failing at it. We read on here in the third verse, reading on down through the fifth, the Bible says, then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. You see, the scripture says that he had went to Jezreel. Now, if you're looking at a map, Jezreel is like as, almost as far north as you can go in, in Israel. Okay, And that's where apparently where Ahab and Jezebel were, all right? And the Bible says that when he told Ahab, Ahab, you better go home because it's about to rain and you may get stuck in the mud. You don't want to get, you don't get hung up in the mud, so you better head back. The Bible says he was so excited about the victory that he had just had that he ran faster than Ahab's chariot could take him. He beat Ahab back to Jezreel, the Bible says. And so he was up there in Jezreel when this word came from Jezebel. I'm going to kill you, just like you killed those prophets. And for whatever reason, it, it, it makes no sense at all, other than Elijah was a, was a human being just like you and me. Instead of standing in that victory, he ran like a scared child. The Bible says that he went all the way from Jezreel, all the way down out of the northern kingdom, into the southern kingdom, all the way down about as far south as you could go, to Beersheba. Beersheba was right on the borderland there of, of the wilderness. And the Bible says that he didn't even stop there. He went further. It's kind of like if someone had threatened your life here and you began to run and you ran all the way to Mexico City. And you're like, well, that ain't far enough. I, I'm going all the way to Chile, Peru. I'm, here I come. I just keep on going down, right? One of those nations down in South America. You just keep on running. That's how scared he was. The Bible continues, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, verse 4 here, and came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Beloved, you have to understand that, that, that your heart is especially vulnerable after a big victory. Think about this for a moment. Have you found that to be true in your life? Those moments where something good has happened, where God's gotten you through something, or you've gotten that promotion, or you've, you've, you've gotten that, 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 that new job, or your team wins the championship, or the big game, I mean, whatever it is, that, that mountaintop experience. Have you found that some of your greatest temptations come the next day? 
I've found that as a preacher, some of my greatest temptations come on Monday after Sunday. After that mountaintop experience. And I don't know what your schedule looks like or, or, or when you're most prone to temptation. But your heart is especially vulnerable after a big victory. Why is that? I think I could point you to four quick things here. One reason is that you let your guard down. After that big victory, you let your guard down because you think the battle's over. I, I don't have to stand guard. I don't have to be vigilant. The battle's done. And that's what, that's what, that's what Elijah thought here. Or maybe it's just fatigue. Sometimes you poured your, yourself out so much that in order to win the victory, that in the aftermath, you just don't have anything left to fight with. So it could be fatigue. It could be that you get full of yourself in the victory. And you say, I, I don't really need God. You wouldn't say that, but your life says, I, I don't really need God. And so you chase after other things and you kind of stand on your own two feet. But also, guys, don't miss this one. It's after that big victory when the enemy is going to be the most ferocious because he just got beat in the battle, but he knows the war isn't over yet. And so he's going to come back with a vengeance to try to steal back what you just gained. So that's one of the reasons why you and I are, are most vulnerable after one of those Big victories. And it just points us to the fact, guys, that we've got to lean on God in every hour, right? We need Him every hour. It's like that old song, right? I need Thee, oh, I need Thee. Every hour, I need Thee. Especially in the mountaintops. We've got to lean into God because afterwards is when we are very vulnerable, especially vulnerable. And we see this with Elijah here. He did not pass the test. He failed in this moment. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his mercy. Because we see here, number two, as you think about the second life-changing truth from this close encounter, is that God will minister to you even in your deepest and darkest valleys. We could stand even right now and begin to testify, right? People could testify, amen, I've seen God do it. God will minister to you even in your deepest and darkest valleys valleys. Elijah was in a spiritual and emotional, deep, dark valley. He was so deep and dark in the moment that the Bible says that, that he wanted to die. Look there again at verse 4. And he asked, the Bible says, that he might die, saying, it's enough now, Lord. Take my life. Just kill me, God. But God instead ministered to him. And there's probably a lot of us that can empathize right now with Elijah in this moment. Because oftentimes it is and after those big victories when it seems like, man, my, the, the picture that I painted for my life, it was so close. It was so close to being exactly what I was hoping for and act, 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 completely what I was dreaming of. And it felt like it was snatched away. And the low of the valley comes in. You may be in one of those valleys right now because your life is not matching up to the picture that you had dreamed. But God ministers to you even in your deepest, darkest Valley. Look at verse 5 through 8. Look at what God does here for Elijah. 
The Bible says in verse 5 down through verse 8, And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This wasn't the first time that God had fed Elijah miraculously. In, uh, actually, back in, verse, uh, in chapter 17, after Elijah had, had, had pronounced the drought, the Bible says that God took him to a place there near the Jordan, and he began to drink from a brook there, and the Bible says that God had commanded ravens to bring food to him. And that's how he survived there until the drought became too great and the brook that he was at dried up. This, so this wasn't the first time that God had provided him, provided for him in miraculous ways. But here in the midst of this valley, in the midst of this deep darkness, God was there ministering to him and loving on him. Beloved, I want you to hear this morning you got to hear this. We talked about this last week, but I want to reiterate it again. God will never leave you or forsake you. Amen? He'll never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, I'm reminded of the 23rd Psalm here. I know we read the 23rd Psalm when it comes to funerals. But the 23rd Psalm is for living too. It's not just for dying. And the 23rd Psalm promises us that when we're in this deep and dark valley, God's with us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley. Of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. It may feel like you are cut off from God, but God will never cut you off. He is with you, there, ministering to you, loving for you. God cares for you, even in that valley. The valley is something we don't like to talk about at church, though, is it? It's, it's not something we like to talk about. Because we've bought into the fact that when we come to church, we, we, we need to put on that happy face. Because Christians are supposed to be happy. Christians are supposed to be joy-filled and all those things we say. Well, that's true, we are. But this is real life we're talking about, right? Real life in a fallen world. And so there is heartbreak, there's frustration, there's depression, there's despondency. All of these things. And we go through these valleys. Did you know that one of the greatest preachers in history struggled mightily with depression and despondency? His name was Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've heard of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he was a famous uh, preacher from England a, a couple of centuries ago. And, and he, he's called the Prince of Preachers. Had an amazing ministry. World famous. I mean, today, I mean, you go into any preacher's library and there is Charles Spurgeon all over the shelf. Yet, while he was alive and while he ministered, he struggled regularly with darkness and depression. 
and discouragement. In fact, he wrote one time to some of his students, listen to this. This is a a lecture that he gave to his students entitled, The Minister's Fainting Fits. (laughs) What that means is sometimes, he's, he's basically talking about an anxiety attack is what he's talking about. An an anxiety attack. And and here's basically what Spurgeon said to to those that he were mentoring in the ministry. He said this, he said, Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be consolatory to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts thereon that younger men might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they became for a season possessed by melancholy. And that sadder men might know that one upon whom the sun has shone right joyously did not always walk in the light. What in the world did he just say? <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is like 17th century, 18th century, I think 17th century. English, right? You know, as far as it goes. What he's saying is this. I need y'all to know that everybody struggles from time to time. That's basically what he's saying there. And I need you to know that even me, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, had moments where I felt like the world was completely dark and that I would just like to die like Elijah. That's what he's saying here. And so I need you to understand this morning that you are not alone. If you're facing that, you're not alone. God is there to minister to you. It's a common thing. And God will minister to you even in your deepest, darkest valley. And God did in miraculous ways. Not only that, the Bible says that he sent him to Mount Horeb. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says... And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now, as I said last week, Mount Horeb is likely in the Sinai Peninsula. But pull up this map here for just a moment. There is also, um, there's also some, some, some uh, discussion amongst Bible scholars and archaeologists and all those things that, that it may not be in the Sinai Peninsula where... Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb was. It may actually be over in Saudi Arabia at a mount called Jabal Makla. Jabal Makla. But either if it's, if it's in Jabal Mausa, which we know there in the Sinai Peninsula, or whether it's over in Saudi Arabia there at Jabal Makla, either way, God said, I want you to come to the mountain of God that you might encounter God. And that's what God did. So guys, know here that God will minister to you even in your deepest and darkest valley. God called Elijah to himself here that he might manifest himself to God. Here's the third life-changing truth then that we want to see from the text, and it's this. And this is, guys, this is the biggest one. If you're going to take any of these home, hear this one. God typically chooses to work in quiet, almost imperceptible ways. We, we read that and we go, come on, God, make it clear, make it big. But God says, no, no, I show up in the quiet. I show up in ways that are imperceptible. We come to this close encounter here, 1 Kings 
chapter 19, verse 9, the Bible says that there he came and lodged in a cave. And behold, the word of the Lord came, uh, the, the the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said back to the Lord, I have been very jealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. You see, guys, Elijah here was feeling sorry for himself. He was feeling sorry for himself. He said, God, this is not the painting that I painted from a life. I expect it to be different. I expect it to be bigger. I expect it to be brighter. I expect it to come to pass just like I had dreamed. But God, my dreams have been dashed. I wonder right now, what, what dreams of yours have been dashed? The thing that you had painted in your life that's not there in the photograph of your life. Maybe you've walked in today feeling sorry for yourself. You're frustrated, you're disappointed, you're discouraged. But you need to hear this morning that God typically doesn't work in the loud, clear ways often. He often works in the quiet, almost imperceptible ways. Look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 here in the text, the Bible says, And God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, the earthquake. After the wind, an earthquake. But the the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. God wasn't in the tornado. He wasn't in the earthquake shaking the earth. He wasn't in the fire consuming the earth. He was in the whisper. God was there, barely perceptible. And it's as if he's saying to Elijah in a demonstration of power, you expect me, Elijah, to always work in this way. But God is saying, Elijah, I don't just work in big ways that everybody can see. I work in ways that no one can even hear or perceive. He comes in that still, small voice. That's how God often works. Jesus himself pointed us to this. Jesus pointed us to this in in Matthew chapter 13. There in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us what the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, how does the kingdom of heaven work? And Jesus says it's like two things. Matthew 13, 31 through 33. The Bible says he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took And sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and and makes nests in its branches. What he's saying here, he says the kingdom of heaven is so tiny that people would just walk past it. They would never recognize that little mustard seed. But with God's power, it grows into a tree and nourishes and blesses all who 
come into it. That's what he's saying there. That's how the kingdom of heaven is. It's often small, quiet ways that you wouldn't even notice walking by. You would notice an avocado nut or a, or a, a walnut or some other big nut. But not a mustard seed. And that's like the kingdom of God. But not only that, he goes a step further. He told him another parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Till it was all leavened. I'm not a baker. But I go to Subway a lot. Just kidding. kidding. I'm not a baker. But in order to get that flour to rise, or that, that bread to rise, it takes some yeast. It takes some leaven to put in there. And when that leaven gets in there... Without the baker really doing much at all, maybe he needs it a little bit or she needs it a little bit. But nevertheless, the yeast and the leaven begins to work all throughout that bread without you even knowing it's doing it. And God says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That it works through everything and makes a difference and an impact, causes that bread to rise. The kingdom of heaven grows just like that, but it's imperceptible. You can't see it. It's hidden. And I say to you this morning, as you think about those frustrations when you compare your painting with your picture and it looks like God's not working, beloved, hear me, God is working. He is faithful. He will bring to pass all of his promises. And so when it looks like he's Vacant, like he's lost, like he's done nothing. Know that God's working even when it seems like he's not. Because God typically chooses to work in quiet, almost imperceptible ways. And so by faith, we believe that God is moving and working. By faith, we believe. And here's the final life-changing truth I'd point you to this morning. I told you we were going to do two about you and me and two about God. Well, we've done one about you and me. Here's the second one, and it's this. Recognize that you are never God's last hope. Oh, my goodness. You're never God's last hope. You see, Elijah had kind of gotten full of himself as the prophet of God, right? And he thought that if he didn't do it or if he died or if he didn't bring to pass what God had promised that it would not happen. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. Verse 13 and 14. This is after the earthquake and fire and tornado and the low whisper. And when Elijah heard the whisper, he wrapped his faith in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He'd already been asked that, but he's asked it again. And he gives the same answer he gave before. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. It was almost as if he was saying, God, this is your fault. How am I supposed to save Israel If Jezebel kills me. You see, Elijah had begun to think 
that he was Israel's last hope, that he was God's last hope. Have you ever been there before yourself where you begin to think that the kingdom of God depends on you? Do you parent like the kingdom of God depends on you? Do you work like the kingdom of God depends on you? Do you fill in the blank? Beloved, let me just be very clear with you this morning. The kingdom of God does not depend on you. The kingdom of God does not depend on me. We are not God's last hope. God is working a bigger picture than we can ever see. And he's using ways and means, again, that we just saw a moment ago, that are imperceptible. And where Elijah thought if he were to die, it would be over, God graciously comes to him in verse 15 and says, Elijah, come on, man. Elijah, let's get real here. Remember, I'm God. You're not God. I'm God. Verse 15 through 18. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king of Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Japhet of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God is graciously saying to Elijah here, listen, Elijah, the kingdom of God does not depend on you. You are not my last hope. And so what does he say? He says, Elijah, go anoint a pagan king that they might go and judge Israel. They might bring judgment on Israel. And he says, Elijah, go anoint a new king of Israel. And Elijah, go go anoint Elisha as prophet in your place. It doesn't depend on you. And he said, Elijah, you think you're the only one? Know that there are 7,000 in Israel that I have kept who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah didn't see that. He thought he was God's last hope. But guys, always remember, always remember, God's got this. If it's God's plan, God will bring it to pass. Yes, he will use you, but it's not dependent upon you. You are never God's last hope. So guess what that does for you? That sets you free to hope in God, to rest in God. If Elijah had done that from the beginning, if he would have painted his picture such that God was the hero of the story and that God was going to bring to pass what he had promised, then it would have been beautiful all the way to the end. But somewhere he got his eyes off of God and got them on himself. And maybe you've come in this morning and, and whatever it is you're facing, whatever where, where, the, where the painting and the picture don't, don't line up, is it because in your hopelessness and despair that you've begun to hope in yourself instead of hoping in God. I want to say to you once again, 
you are never God's last hope. God is our hope. God is our hope. Here's my final prayer as the praise team comes. May you encounter God and never be the same. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.